Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali. And today is a really special episode. I'm joined by former Australian cricket player and former Pakistan coach, uh, Jeff Lawson. It's an absolute honor hosting uh, Jeff Lawson here on the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Saqib. Lovely to talk to you. No, it's uh, absolutely. I don't take these opportunities lightly when I speak to former grace of the game. And this is just a highlight when I have someone of your caliber here. So there's no point in introducing you because anyone who's listening and who has any ounce of knowledge of the game knows, uh, you know, your career arc. But if you look back at your playing days, uh, you made your debut with Greg Chappell as captain, I believe, Dennis Lilly in the team and uh, Rodney Marsh. So what was that feeling like? I know it's a long, long time ago when you walked in, you know, got your baggy green and you were part of an Australian team with some of, you know, some of the guys you probably had been watching on TV play, some of the all-time greats. Do you recall yeah, well, that, that moment? Yeah, yeah. well, that's very true. They were, most of those players were my heroes when I was growing up. Um, it was interesting times. I mean, I'd, I'd been off to uh, India in 79 as a replacement player. So I had a few weeks with what was the really the establishment Australian team. And then by 80, 81, when World Series cricket had finished, all the, all the greats were back in the game and the, you know, the strength it was all back together. So, yeah, I mean, the guys who I'd grown up watching and, and admiring and were, but here, I mean, Dennis Lilly was, was my role model and hero. And, you know, as a, as a teenager, I used to get the train up from Wagga Wagga, which is about a 10-hour train trip with some mates, and we'd go to the SCG and watch a test match there and watch Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson bowling, you know, incredibly fast and, and just just in awe of what they could do. So yeah, those those guys were were my heroes. Um, so to, to turn up for a test match and share the same dressing room w- w- was quite a thrill, particularly as we hadn't played against each other hardly at all. Because uh, you know I don't think I'd played Dennis or Rod in, in Shield cricket at all, or maybe Greg once. So I wasn't even that that familiar with them because they they were coming back off World Series day. So yeah, it was a fascinating time, uh, and you know I was a bit bit awestruck being in the same dressing room. Fortunately, I was also in there with someone like Doug Walters, who was also a hero of mine, but at least I'd played some Sheffield Shield cricket with Doug. So, you know, that, that was quite a calming influence. I mean, he was a pretty laid-back character and, and he, he, was, he was pretty useful in just making you welcome in the dressing room and the team. So, uh, yeah, fascinating time that, that first test at Brisbane way back when. 81? Is it? 80, yeah, 80, yeah, where it was late November 1980, I think it was. So, uh, yeah, it seems like yesterday. It's uh, something you just said. Uh, I'm, I'm taking a quick digression, not planned, but uh, just picking up your response. So you said you really didn't play them in Sheffield Shield matches because either they were playing for Australia or they were playing World Series cricket. Uh, you think uh, that's that's the norm, uh, not uh, for Australian cricketers of that era to be not playing the domestic level or that was just the uniqueness of the times? No, no, it was very normal for the test players. The test players played every Sheffield Shield game. Um, and it was just a, a, a reflection on the time that World Series cricket had been on and uh, it had finished the year before. But uh, I think we had a 1980, we had a centenary test in England. So the players went off there. And that was early in the 80-81 season. So we'd only played, uh, you know, a couple of Shield games before the first test. So you, you may not have played against Western Australia where Dennis and Rod was or, or Queensland where Greg was. So, yeah, just just a reflection of the times then that uh, World Series cricket had, had taken those guys away for, for a couple of seasons. Absolutely. So, again, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, batting partnerships, but, you know, the reality is at least... Uh, bowlers, you know, fast bowlers and bowlers bowl and pair and tandem and, you know, workout plans. So if you want to just reflect and maybe for the listenership here, some good tidbit, how was it sharing the ball with the likes of Lily Tomo and Len Pasco and even McDermott and Alderman and Hughes? So who did you, you know, how did that work? You know, the fast bowlers plan, how they're going to bowl in tandem? Is it different bowling first change? Just fill us in, you know, educate us because these are all fascinating topics that fans at our level really like to know more from greats like you. So how does that work at that level? Well, well, first I think you're, I mean, it, 
batting partnerships are, are always talked about and, and are very important. And so, same with bowling, particularly opening up and you know, that new ball, who's going to get the win, which way, which direction is the wind coming from? Is it across for someone's swing? I mean, I bowl mostly out swing. Uh, I tried to when I bowled fast. I bowled a little bit of in swing, but I bowled mostly in out swing. You know, Dennis didn't swing the ball much, but he bowled very fast down breeze. So it was very different playing at somewhere like the Wacker, where you had the the, the Fremantle doctor would come in the afternoon and, and really affect how the game was played. And you needed upwind bowlers. And Terry Alderman, who swung and he bowled a lot of upwind. Guys like Mick Malone bowled upwind. Lenny Pascoe, when he was an out-and-out fast bowler. Uh, so, so actually, we had a bit of an issue when World Series cricket did finish and Lenny came back into the fold and I'd, I'd been getting the ball downwind and Lenny wanted it as well. So we had two downwind bowlers. Uh, so Rick McCosker, the skipper, had to sort that one out. Uh, I think we end up sharing it around a little bit. Uh, and we just, we just hoped that the wind wasn't bowling too, blowing too strongly for one direction. So we didn't have to, uh, have, to have a choice between her to bowl. I, I didn't like bowling into the wind much at all. It just didn't suit what I did. I mean, occasionally you, you were forced to do it because of the match situation and, and maybe your bowling partner was bowling particularly well. Uh, certainly in that first test match, I mean, Dennis got the choice. I mean, Dennis was, you know, the legend of the game. And um, by 80, 1980, he wasn't bowling as fast as he did in the 70s, of course, but he was still an absolutely brilliant bowler. So he, he got the choice uh, of what he wanted to do. I mean, I, I think from memory, I mean, Lenny bowled... Uh, down breeze as well. But we played at Brisbane and there was a lot of wind around. So those those things make a difference. There's also things like certain grounds have slope. Obviously, the Lord's slope's favourite, but that, that goes across the ground. But there used to be a slope at the SCG. So if you're coming from the southern end, which I call the University of New South Wales end, there used to be quite a big slope up uh, to the ground. So you, your run-up was uphill, whereas at the Paddington end, it was quite flat. And I never used to like run up the hills, so I, I prefer the Paddington end almost no matter where the breeze was from. They redid the SCG in 2000 during the Olympics and they leveled it all out. So that slope isn't, isn't quite there as much. But, but all those little factors uh, make a difference. I mean, bowling in Adelaide, you know, it was a very good batting wicket, but it had beautifully flat run-ups and you could get your rhythm there and, and, and bowl at your peak. I always loved bowling in Adelaide, even though the pitch wasn't giving you much. I just always felt I had a great rhythm there. Um, Melbourne a bit the same. It was pretty flat. Perth, you, you had to choose your breeze. Uh, so all those factors are important and, and certainly what your, your opening bowler's doing. I mean, Terry Alderman, of course, swung it famously in uh, that 89 Ashes series. I mean, he basically got the choice of end that would help his outswinger and I would bowl usually the other end and then Merv views would, would come in after that. So we, you have to adapt to what situations are put in front of you. Uh, and and all, all those bowlers... Uh, those great bowlers had different methods of doing it. I mean, Jeff Thompson didn't care where he bowled from. He just ran in and, and bowled absolutely lightning, whether the, the wind was blowing uphill, down it, old ball, new ball. It, it didn't didn't worry him. But but one of my great bowling uh, partners was Mike Whitney at New South Wales. We, we played you know, 60 or 70 first-class games together. And he bowled his left-handers basically into the wind and I bowled downwind. And it was a, a great opening combination, having a left and a right and, we always knew what our roles were. So, um, and all those little factors come into play when, you, when you're bowling. You're, you're always looking for the, the smallest edge. You know, you, you want, to, want the ball to, to swing a few inches. You know, you, you, you want a bit of extra pace down breeze. You want your rhythm to be, be just right. Um, and they're all the challenges that, that you get. And all the bowlers, you know, you know Dennis, very different action. Um, you know, Terry... Pitched it up, swung it. Lenny bowled as fast as he could nearly every ball. Tomo was was unique. Uh, someone like Craig McDermott, I mean, he debuted at 18 uh, in, in a Melbourne test match. And, uh, you know, he bowled terrific outswingers at, at pace. And, uh, you know, he was probably, he probably peaked around his late, late 20s. So he had a great start in the game at 18. And, you know, he was in and out of the side for a while, which it would be when you're 18 as a fast bowler. Uh, Let me ask you this. Maybe it's a question that you can dismiss, but I'm going to just ask here. Uh, does it make sense because you're a fast bowler yourself and it doesn't matter who's bowling at the other end, like a swing bowler like Alderman or a tear away like Lily, if you are setting up a batsman like who's struggling, do you? does it matter? It's a captain's call, you just focus on your job or you feel comfortable bowling in a tandem where you can set batsmen up or trap them? Uh, do these kind of conversations happen at the test level? 
Oh, they, they certainly do. And and once again, in the game of cricket, it all depends. I mean, it all depends, you know, new ball, old ball, you know, how much bounce in the pitch, is it seeming? All those things become issues that you, you've got to deal with. But certainly bowling your partnerships and having your, your bowling partner set up the opposition is is very, very important. Um, you know, if you say Merv, Merv and I were bowling, and we've been you know, reasonably fast and, and getting players to, to get caught on the cruise or playing back a lot and bowling a few bumpers. And then Terry would be at the other end, maybe pitching it up and, and, and the batsmen weren't quite used to that. So you had to bowl tightly. You weren't trying not to give runs away, but you also try to, to get the batsman playing shots that, that he didn't want to play and that your, uh, your fellow bowler at the other end could exploit. So yes, you're always thinking about what was going on at the other end. At the same time, you're trying to get the batsman out with, it's whatever tactic you had. So you know, that, that's what, what great bowling teams and combinations have done over the years. And I think that's certainly like what Cummins and Hazelwood do at the moment, you know, Anderson and, and Broad have done, um, you know, Wacker and, and Wazim. I mean, they, they all had ways of working together, but also working by themselves. Sure. So in this day and age, there's a lot of information for folks like us to grab from Google. There's a lot of stuff happening on Twitter. There's a lot of analysis. And one common theme that has emerged over the last decade or so, at least my, my knowledge is people start focusing on the small things like balls. So this guy can bowl with the Kukabura, but he struggles with the Dukes or vice versa, or the SCG ball they use in India. So what, were there different kinds of balls in test matches during your playing days? And uh, talk about your experience in Lords using that as a metric, because in your third test match, you took 12 wickets. Yeah, there was always a different different balls. I mean, the Kookaburra uh, was one we all grew up with in Australia and used in, in our club cricket and also um, obviously in shield cricket and test cricket. And uh, through in the 80s, the, the Kookaburra did actually swing quite a bit when it was brand new. It would lose its shine quickly, but it, it would swing early. Um, that changed, you know, the late 90s, into the 2000s when it stopped doing anything at all. And reverse swing became much more important because the ball wasn't swinging new. But when you went to England... You, you had either the Dukes or a Reader. And I used to love bowling with those. The, the pitches didn't uh, take the shine off as quickly as Australian pitches. They had a bigger seam. Uh, the pitches themselves were, were generally a little bit, bit softer, so the, so the ball seamed around a bit more. Uh, I used to love bowling with the Dukes. Um, but, I mean, classically in 1989, we used to have a, two tosses before a test match. One toss was for which ball to use whether it was going to be the reader or the duke. And the reader had a slightly uh, fatter seam. It had, I think it had 12 strands of uh, twine in it rather than nine. And, and England had a bowler called Phil Newport, who they thought could swing the ball uh, all over the place. And he did in, in county games. Um, but when he got into test, pet, test match wickets, it was, was a little bit different. So, yeah, different balls were used. Uh, in India, the test matches... Back in the eighties, they used to use uh, the kookaburras before the SG ball came along because the Indian balls were, that they manufactured locally were, <coughs> excuse me, were quite hard and used to damage the bats and they were quite hard to catch and feel with. They used to last a long time, but uh, they weren't quite the standard you wanted for Test cricket. But when when the SG ball came along, um, they they adapted it and evolved it. It's you know it's an excellent cricket ball, particularly for Indian conditions. And they all the balls do a little bit different there. They shine differently, you know, they swing at different amounts, the seams are slightly different. Um, and, and look, it's, it's a fascinating um, art, if not science, you know, picking the cricket ball and deciding which one you want to use. Within any box of balls, they'll come out, they'll, they'll be slightly different anyway, slightly different colour, slightly different shine, leather, slightly so Which balls treat. would the Aussies choose if they won the toss? Well, we didn't care. It, 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 it was it was was real. I mean, the bowlers wouldn't mind the reader. The batsmen wanted the Dukes, <laughs> but uh, but we didn't care as a team. But but England sort of had this thing in their mind that the reader was going to help them bowl uh, a lot better, and, and particularly one bowler in Phil Newport. And it was quite a bit of a fallacy, really. Um, you know, I think from memory, the first test, I think they won the toss for the ball. Uh, and used the reader, and they also won the toss and sent us in, and we got 600 uh, and you know, changed the course of that whole series on the first day, And whereas they thought their ball and their particular bowler would be unplayable. That wasn't the case. So 
uh, you can have a lot of theories, but but sometimes they don't work out. And <laughs> and and uh, to be honest, for the rest of the series, I don't think it mattered. They they. David Goward was the captain. He, he just thought it was a bit of rubbish after that. It was a bit of propaganda early, but it really wasn't wasn't working. And the balls, both the reader and the Duke, were, were quite good, you know, top standard balls, and that they behaved pretty similarly. Um, whereas, what you know, was, the other, what, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the other issue is when you get difference between red and white balls. You know, the the red kookaburra used to actually swing a bit, and the white kookaburra used to do very little. And no one could quite figure out why that was. So, um, so there's more art than science to a lot of this stuff. Sure. So back back in the day, I mean, Ashes tests are still, I think, five or six in England. Uh, and the usual tour dura- duration used to be close to three months, if I'm not mistaken. So even then, playing in England for the first time, what kind of adjustment as a fast bowler Aussie boys have to do for their lengths and you know, how they have to hit the deck? Because for the longest time, Indians and Pakistani seamers struggle to bowl in Australia. So I just want to ask you, what was the mindset and the technique set that Australian quicks have to do when they go to England for the first time? Because the conditions yeah, well, are so it, different. Yeah, it is different. And you know, Australian pitch is hard and bouncy generally. Um, not much seam. So, so it favours bowlers who bowl fast and have extra pace and bounce. Not necessarily those who pitch it up and try to swing it. And the kookaburra didn't swing that much. You go to England, uh, if you bowl short, the ball comes off so slowly, it's easy to play. Um, you, you don't want players playing much off the back foot in England because they've, they've got that extra time and they can hook and cut much more easily. Um, so, yeah, you've, you've got to find a different length. I mean, the biggest thing I found on my first tour in England was just the weather. You know, playing in cold weather. I mean, the tours were more like four and a half months and three, and you'd, you'd get there in the first week of May. And it'd be freezing cold and you could get July, August days where it was, you know, 14, 15 degrees. And obviously being brought up in Australia, you say, I like some hot weather. I, I want to bowl when it's hot. I don't want to bowl when it's cold. So you, you had to deal with that, you know, working up a sweat and then getting cold very quickly and dealing with the, the climate as much as anything was, was an issue. And, and then yeah, you bowled your first spell, you could get sweaty, and then put a jumper on and, and then get cold very quickly and then have to come back. And managing your body through that was, was one of the, the biggest issues. And if you look at when I did three Ashes tours, and we did very well when the weather was hot. 89 was a great warm summer in England, and Australia played brilliantly. You know, 81, 85, they were miserable, cold, wet summers, and we didn't do so well. I think that's a fact that some people don't really think about when they're going to different countries to play. I mean, England always talk about, oh, we've got to go to Australia. It's going to be really hot and dry. Well, it is, and you're going to have to play some cricket when it's 40 degrees centigrade plus out in the middle, and you're just going to have to suck it up and do it. So you've got to get used to a different environment. That's what it's just Yeah, absolutely. If you want to go to Madras, you know it's going to be really humid, or, or you know you want to play in Colombo, you, you know, you're going to have to deal with with lots of dehydration and you know, all these all these things are different and. And that's the, the beauty of the game and the beauty of test cricket. So, yeah, playing in England, your ball's different, pitch is different, weather different. Um, so, yeah, you've, you've got to bowl a different length. And, and you can even slow down a bit when you bowl in England. You don't, the quicker you bowl, sometimes the easier it is to bat. So you've got to maybe take a little bit of pace off it and make it difficult for, for batsmen to hit through the line. And, uh, you know, I think it's something certainly that, say, in 89, that, that Terry Alderman did absolutely brilliantly. He, he hardly bowled a short ball of the whole series. You just kept pitching it up. Uh, batsmen used to plonk on the front foot and they'd play across the line and they're out. They'd, well, the other thing is, of course, is the umpires have different interpretations. I'll give you more LBWs on the front foot because they know the ball's not going out of the stumps. Whereas in Australia, yeah, less though because of the bounce and all, seemed, all those things. Alderman seemed like a, a New Zealander, English bowler playing for Australia to me, the way he swung the ball, because there's always this fixation with pace in Australia, as far as I remember. He was definitely the outlier. Yeah, and, and, it, and that came about through interesting circumstances, because when Terry first started, he bowled very quick. I mean, Terry's a big guy, you know, six foot three and quite strong. Um, and he bowled very fast in his, his youth for, for Western Australia. I mean, once he was bowling at the Wacker, um, you know, that, that's a that's a pitch where you love to bowl fast. Of course, he could bowl into the wind and, and swing it a bit. And I think he was forced to do that a bit at, at Perth with the other bowlers in the side. 
Um, but it was only after he did his shoulder injury in, in um, the Perth test, was at 82-3, when that spectator came on the ground and he tried to tackle him. And, you know, he needed a shoulder reconstruction. After that, he certainly bowled um, more slowly. And his arm was also a little bit lower. And it actually helped his, his outswinger. Um, and so that was perfect for England. He just adapted to the conditions. Pitch it up. Bowl wicket to wicket. A little bit of movement either way. Get a nick on the outside edge. You know, get an LBW through the gate. Uh, he was absolutely brilliant at it. But it, that did come about through you know, having an injury and having to slow down and, and you know, adapting your body to what, what you now got. And there was an opportunity cost. He became, because of the injury, less effective in his home conditions compared to what he was, I'd say, in England and New Zealand. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. You know, he, he, he'd lost that pace and um, Bassman actually found it easier to drive him back in Australia. He'd pitch it up and it wouldn't seem and the ball comes on because of the hard wickets. Uh, so, so he wasn't quite that that effective and he found that in the West Indies as well. You know, they, they would actually you know, bat out of their crease and come hard at him because the, the wickets were harder. They just skid it on. And you find that with lots of bowlers, you know, the, the, the individual characteristics are suited to different conditions and, and you know, they can be quite successful, uh, you know, maybe on, on slow seeming wickets and not on hard and vice versa. So, you know, it's just part of the territory. Absolutely. So let me go back to a response you just gave me to a previous question when you said the length of the tours used to span four, four and a half months. And in current days, we all know players in all sorts of sports are talking about, you know, mental health and sometimes depression or, you know, the toughness when you're struggling emotionally and uh, people are more open about it. So let's go back to any Ashes tour, not necessarily like, you know, a mental health issue, but four and a half months away from home, if the team's not winning, Talk about that mindset. What what do players do? I mean, uh, you're playing probably six test matches and maybe like seven, you know, warm-up games, uh, to be fair. So w- what does a professional cricketer do if you're going through a personal lull, the team is struggling or vice versa? Uh, educate us about that kind of an experience. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's difficult. If you're losing like, at home, it's difficult. I mean, losing is not good, particularly for professionals. Uh, but, but if you're playing for Australia or England in an action series, I mean, that's, that's pretty big. You know, you've got lots of media on you. It's like India or uh, or Pakistan. When they start losing, particularly at home, you know, there's a massive amount of pressure on them. Uh, so yeah, you've got to deal with the media. They, I mean, in the 80s, the media wasn't as pervasive as it is now. And you know, social media these days, everybody can say what they want. You know, every fan can, can post a you know, Twitter and Instagram or whatever and say what they think. And, and a lot of it, hasn't got a lot of thought behind it. You know, it, it's, it's not very sensible stuff. Whereas even in the eighties, when I was touring, we, we had, you know, journos who wrote for the papers and they had specific jobs to do. They certainly didn't write about what happened off the field. Um, you know, they stuck to, to match reporting and, and people back at home wanted to read that reporting. Uh, you know, they might have to wait till the next morning or the next day uh, in Australia to read what happened in an ashes test. Um, you know, direct TV coverage, isn't isn't all that old? I mean, that would have start, that started in the eighties, you know, mid eighties. So uh, the media scene and, and coverage of the sport is, is very different. Um, so I mean, particularly so, and actually, we would look right first week of May and leave in September, uh, and we weren't allowed to have our families there. That was part of the rules. And now they're talking about, oh, we're not going to Australia if our families can't come. Well, people have spent you know five months away from their families playing professional sport. Um, and I don't have a, that much sympathy for these people. They're getting paid millions of millions of dollars and pounds, uh, which we weren't, uh, and they're not away from home that long, and they can pick up their telephone and have a, have a, a, a video call, whereas I remember we were going to Pakistan. We had to book a, a three-minute call three days in advance to have a chat on the phone. It would last a couple of minutes. So, you know... <laughs> I think uh, the the players these days have got it pretty good. I mean, they they travel business class. Part of their deals with their players' associations that their families travel business class, uh, whereas we were actually banned from having our families there until the last sort of week or week or two of an Ashes series. Um, so yeah, if if you were say eighty one when we were, we were losing and the weather was terrible and you know it becomes pretty difficult. No, but like, the, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just going to say that the one thing is. You had to actually. You played cricket all the time. There wasn't seven warm-up games. I, I think we played about fifteen 
in 1981. So you played the, the Test Series and 15 other first-class games and then a few one-dayers. So you're actually playing cricket incessantly. So you didn't have a lot of time to sit around and, and think about. There wasn't much spare time. You're either playing or travelling, and, and that's about it. Whereas these days, um, as you said, there's only a few warm-up games between every Test match. They don't have long tours. They don't have time to settle in and, and enjoy you know, maybe a county game or several county games that the you know, place of cricket finds some form and enjoy the game so much. It's, you know, hardly a warm-up game and you're into a test series and you're out of it and you're off playing something else. So uh, the formats of the of the tours have changed considerably. Yep, yep they were long um, before, but but you were playing a heck of a lot of cricket. And, and you know, that just keeps your mind on the game and you, you don't have time to, to drift off and think of the other things. And, you know, I, I guess mental health issues were there. Um but uh, these days, it seems to be they've got less to complain about, and, and but they, they go ahead and do it because the opportunity is there. You know, the, the, the support staff, you know, they have 20 support staff. Well, we'd had two. You know, we might have had a, had a coach and a physio. Um, so the game's changed a, a heck of a lot from, from what we used to do. No, definitely times have changed. So that, that also is food for thought, like, you know, what India just did yesterday at Lords. Uh, and... Uh, not only India, not many, I think all teams, when they travel, they don't really get more than one or two warm-up games. And those are not as serious warm-up games that it used to be back in your time. So you think these guys with the IPL and the white ball cricket, you think these guys have their work cut out as harder for any team to tour any other country because there's really zero adjustment time. That's why there are very few great traveling teams. Everyone's solid at home but very few teams can be competitive on someone else's turf. Yeah, look, I think given the different conditions in different countries, I mean, it, it's different going to India, it's different going to Pakistan, Sri Lanka, West Indies, obviously Australia, New Zealand, they're all, they're all quite different. And, and when you used to have longish tours and you could play the warm-up games, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you, you could get used to and adapt to the conditions. And the better players... Batsmen and bowlers would adapt to those conditions, but but you're quite right. Now you don't have that time. And occasionally they they have a uh, you know warm up game against a you know a president's eleven or a chairman's eleven or you know, some hybrid team, or they even play you know inter squad games, which you know are not particularly competitive. We all know what you know, centre wicket practices are one of the greatest waste of times in in the world of cricket. Um, but yes, to get used to conditions, um, you, you've got to go and play competitive matches. And at least when we played in, in England, we played the counties, and yeah, you know, the first your first class record mattered. You got the runs and your wickets all counted on your first class record, and and you wanted to win. You didn't want to get beaten by a county, that's for sure. So there was that competitive urge that that actually made you better as well, rather than playing warm up games that don't really count. And I, I think. You know, coaches and authorities are missing that that completely about the kind of warm up games they want. And they play, they might play fifteen aside, and the bowlers don't get a bat, and all all those sorts of issues. And it just doesn't lead you into a competitive frame of mind. And, and I think you're right. That's why home teams have a bigger advantage these days because the visitors just don't spend the time and effort. All the, all the quality. So they don't have the quality or the quantity of, of, of matches leading into series. So, yeah, yeah, they, they don't tend to be as successful. Absolutely. So that just brings me to this question about your career. Uh, it was, you know, definitely uh, hit by injuries here and there, and you didn't play as many matches you should have played. So let's walk us through that period. Uh, did you fall out of favor with the selectors? Because, for example, like today, if a Pat Cummins is injured and once his injury heals, he usually will be back in the squad. So did you ever run into this, that you have to prove yourself again at the domestic level to be in the reckoning? Uh, because... well, well, yeah, one of the biggest differences between, so say, and let's take Pat as the example, and what we did, we only played for match payments. We went on million-dollar contracts for not playing before we started. So you had to play, if you want to pay your mortgage, you had to play the game. So you played with injuries. You know, nowadays they have a rest with the, the sliders of injury because they're still getting paid and they know they'll be brought back into the side or into the squad. So they don't, they don't lose financially by not playing, whereas, whereas we had to play. 
and and that is the biggest difference I think between the eighties and through the mid nineties to what happens today. Um, so players are on contracts for their national contracts for yeah, say millions of dollars before they've even played one cricket match. They also have players associations that make sure the players are dealt with fairly. And, and we certainly were not dealt with fairly, uh, even post-World Series cricket in Australia. Uh, so the, the, that's the biggest difference. So when you play with injuries, you get more injured and you don't play quite as well. But that's, that's, that's a fundamental. Um, so, you know, I'm quite envious of, of your modern player who is paid big money and, and doesn't have to turn up and play. And in Australia right now, we've, we've got that situation where players pulled out of the, the West Indies and Bangladesh series um, and they don't really, it doesn't matter to them. Uh, they don't pay a penalty. Uh, they certainly don't in selections. The selectors say, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll pick you when you come back. So, and I know that doesn't go down well with, with some of the current players who, who are making those sacrifices to, to be in quarantine bubbles and play, and, and other guys are just sitting at home and, and playing golf and also getting paid. So uh, that, that will be an issue, I think, coming up for, for Australia very shortly when they pick a, a T20 World Cup side. Um, but yeah, yeah the so cal- you, you calendar pl- is so packed. You don't even, I don't want to even single out Australia. I feel like, like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and even to an extent Pakistan. I was looking at the squads that are going to be there this year. Some of the key players from visiting teams are missing. And, uh, you know, as an Indian, I enjoy when a lot of the best teams come to India fully stacked, but things have changed. Cricket was not like this. You can't pick and choose, but because of the heavy demand of the calendar and, you know, the kind of cricket these guys play, uh, not the best. 11 always tours like a given destination and that used to that yeah. wasn't the case before yeah and that that, that is a that is a bit of a pity i mean it, it's been um so the current india um england series has been fantastic because we've only had two test matches but we've got a few to go but that, that's basically the strongest teams both sides can put on the field i mean stokes obviously not playing for england's a big Big blow, but he's he's got another sort of injury. Uh, but yeah, that's that's fabulous cricket. What we're seeing out, out of those two sides at the moment. Um, but also the 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 proliferation of, of T Twenty tournaments where players make big money and they go and play uh, instead of having rest periods. Um, that, that that that's also a factor, and I'm not sure what can be done about that. If you want to go and play the IPL for a couple of million dollars, are you going to have a rest for six weeks? to make sure you're right for a, for a national T20 tour. Um, players don't seem to be doing that. Um, and, you know, authorities are letting them letting them get away with it. I mean, uh, they say, well, you, you, know, you can go and play in the IPL window. There's a lot of pressure on from, you know, from BCCI to, to have the best players in that competition. And, and uh, yeah, that, that's what happens. Those, those guys go and play that. Uh, it, it used to be, you say, in the 80s, you could have those lengthy tours. They had a couple of those, but but there wasn't all the the, the one day trips and the uh, and the T twenty tours on it. We had it, it. I remember just after the eighty nine Ashes tour, we only came home for about a week, and we had to go back to India uh, for a, a a fifty over series. I think it was the Nehru Trophy from memory, um, and that was one of the times where we had a four and a half month tour. Some of us had bowled a lot of overs. We were very tired, and yet. You know, we had a short period at home and we had to go back to India to play a one-day international tournament. And we found that, I know we found that very tiring when we got back to India. When we should have been having a rest, rest and recovering before the Australian season, we had to go and play all over India uh, in, in some uh, some very difficult places. And I remember that being, being quite physically and mentally tiring. Whereas, as you said, today, there seems to be tours on all the time, that whether it's you know, 50 over, 20 over, or, or the occasional test series. So, yeah, the players do do travel a lot and play a lot of cricket these days. And they don't get that rest that enables them to recharge the batteries. All the little niggles you get um, don't get a chance to heal up. So I can understand why some players say, look, I'm not, not going on this particular, you know, whiteboard tour. I, I need, need some downtime. Got it. So one more question on your playing days before we switch to your coaching job and especially you know the years in Pakistan so you played under Greg Chappell, Kim Hughes, Alan Border your three captains of I don't know if you played for more uh, but there's a modern day discussion among fans and journalists that there is a certain overestimation when it comes to cricket captaincy it's all, it's about man management but if you have a good team you'll get the thing you know done because the guys you're 
captaining our very skillful cricketers. So that being uh, kept in mind, if cricket is just about man- captaincy, about more about man management, who did you enjoy playing for the most? Was it Greg Chappell? Was it Hughes? Or was it Border? Or who got Three the maximum out of you? Friends. Sorry, that's even a better question. Yeah, well, well, Chapel, Border, and Hughes were all three, you know, different people with different characteristics and 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 captains at different times and different times in my career. When I started under Greg Chapel, my first test, I mean, I was just a junior player, uh, and uh, I wasn't given much autonomy by Greg. I just had my field set for me. I was told what to do. Um, you know, one end I was going to bowl for, and I didn't really have a lot of input into it, which. To me, was was quite unusual because at New South Wales with Rick McCosker, um, he asked the bowlers what they wanted. Uh, my club captain at the University of New South Wales, John Rogers, who's the the father of later Test opener Chris. Um, even when we you know 18, 19 year olds in first grade, um, he would ask us what we wanted. You know, what do you think about this? What do you think about? It? And he made you th- made you really go into depth about how you were playing your own game, and you were given responsibility and, and being you know, a university student at the time and, and having a bit of an intellect, I, I, I thought I needed to be consulted. Um, but I wasn't. I was very fortunate that, that Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly were in that, that first test team. And they were, they were terrific to me. They, I mean, they helped me out with stuff. Um, they asked my opinions on things, which was terrific. But, I mean, Greg's idea of captaincy was to be an autocrat. That's how he learned how to be a captain. And, and okay, that, that's what he did. He was obviously a, a great player. Um, and his expectations of other players were probably that they all they were all great to start off with. But yeah, so I didn't get a lot of encouragement. In fact, in my first test, I didn't bowl that many overs. Um, I took a couple of wickets. Um, we won by 10 wickets and I was dropped for the second test. So that's a bit of an indication of what Greg thought about, about me. I was a non-World Series player. I was just a young guy who had come up through the ranks and I was bowling quite fast. Excuse me, probably as fast as anyone in the team at the at that time, and then Lenny Pasco, who, who bowled pretty sharp. Um, so yeah, so that that didn't work out in my first test. When I came back later in '82-3 under Greg, it was a different kettle of fish. I mean, I was the main bowler. You know, Dennis had been injured, Terry had been injured, um, and you know, I, I end up you know getting thirty odd wickets in the Ashes series and becoming player of the of the series, and I was given a lot more autonomy, which which I should have been. So that was a, an evolutionary thing with, with Greg, but he'd obviously learned to captain one way and that's the way it was going to be. Kim, on the other hand, gave me responsibility straight away. He, he, was, he was the man who wanted me in India in 79. He just got me out of obscurity. I'd only played a few first-class games. Um, so he backed my ability. Um, he also obviously backed my intellect to be able to provide something to the team. And then in an AB... Following on that in 84, yeah, we were the two main players in the team for a while. I mean, it was, he was the first pick and I was probably the second pick during those, those tough West Indies years. Um, so AB, yeah, you know, he threw the ball to me and I, I, I got what I wanted. You know, I, I sit in my fields and, and, and made decisions. Um, and, you know, it wasn't really till, till 89, so five years of captaincy that, that AB really wanted to do the job. He was thrust into the position in 84. He just wanted to be a player. He just, he just wanted to be one of the boys, play his game and, and bat, you know, with, the, with that unflinching courage that he did, which, which he pl- did every time he played the game. And he led by example through his, through his batting and his courage and his determination, his discipline. Uh, and he, and he, he let the bowlers do pretty much what they wanted to do. So whether it was myself, Terry, you know, Merv Hughes, um, Rodney Hogg, whatever, um, you know, we would have the major input into our field placements. And if he didn't like it, he'd, he'd say so. But he was much more a, a, a consensus captain. Uh, and then he, he really grew into the job, you know, later on. And, you know, by the time he finished the early 90s, he was a, he was a terrific, terrific captain uh, in all aspects of the game. So he's been a terrific player. So three different people of three different eras with three different personalities. And they, they did the job differently. Absolutely. That's why it's so unique, the sport. So let's talk about Pakistan. I mean, I'm an Indian, but I have a lot of Pakistani friends and I followed when you were appointed coach and when you were, you were let go. A lot of those Pakistani friends of mine, you know, who were well wishes of the cricket team were upset. Long, long time ago now. How do you look back at that tenure? And do you think in your powers, I mean, again, hindsight is you know, always, you have more wisdom. Could you have done differently? Could you have prepared differently? 
Is it a culture shock having an Aussie coach in the subcontinent? Uh, how do you look look back at those 16 months in Lahore? Uh, look, I, I had a wonderful time. You know, we, we had some terrific players, some really outstanding young players coming through. Uh, the people, to me, whether in the cricket community or, or the general fans, were, were fantastic to me. I, you know, I've got no complaints whatsoever. Uh, obviously, a different culture, but, you know, you know, I'm a man of the world. I, mean, I understand different cultures. And I, I, I did a lot of reading before I went to Pakistan on the history of Islamic cultures and the history of Pakistan. And I probably knew more about pet- petition and the creation of Pakistan than, than most of the locals did. You know, I tried to make myself as informed as I could. You know, I, I set about learning some, you know, some fundamental Urdu so I could communicate when I wanted to. And, and uh, you know, I really had, had a terrific time. You know, we did... We did pretty well early on in the the T Twenty World Cup, nearly nearly snatching a famous victory, and but making a World Cup final. Um, so that set the bar pretty hard, pretty high. And in the last time India played Pakistan in a Test series, I was the coach. That, that's how long that's been. Um, and and we had the tour of of India. Uh, was that November December '07, which was a fabulous tour, a really great tour. There's some some. Wonderful cricket played. Some really tough, high standard cricket was played, and uh, the, the fans in India were, well, I thought, were, were wonderful to the Pakistan team. They appreciated how they played, how they behaved, and and it was, a, you know, a, yeah, one, one of the best uh, events I've ever been associated with was was that Pakistan tour of India on and off the field. Um, so yeah, the guy had, had a terrific team. I mean, the disappointing thing was. And uh, to have the, the contract cut short, just when we're really building on something, you know, had had some good young players, you know, Shah Malik was was just starting to get a grasp of what it take to be the captain. I mean, he was a young guy thrown into that position uh, after that that 07 World Cup, you know, fiasco, and they they moved on a lot of the older players, but the younger players were, were terrific. You know, we had Misbar Al Haq was a wonderful influence in the side. Um, Playing and leading, uh, you know, some wonderful fast bowling spinners. It was was a really good time, and but when it came to a, to an end, I mean that, that was quite expected because when I went there, I said that if there's any issues with the politics of, of cricket in this country, you know, I'm happy to walk away. Now, I was you know familiar with what happens in Pakistan, the country, and its cricket, so it, it didn't come as a shock. I mean, what came as a shock is that. That the you know the the national election changed the government that shocked everybody. That once that happened, uh, everybody at the PCB and the players knew that there would be wholesale changes because there'd be a new new chairman. And Nazib Ashraf was a fantastic chairman. He, he did wonderful things for Pakistan cricket, uh, and he supported me and he supported the players and he supported you know the growth of of cricket around Pakistan itself. So. And he, he, did a, he did a terrific job. He had some great management there at the time. Um, and, and Pakistan cricket was going in the right direction. But federal elect, national election comes along, government changes, and it took a few months for them to sort out who the new PCB chairman was. But it, you know, unfortunately, it was EJ's butt, who, who really was a throwback to the, to the bad old times of, of Pakistan and Pakistan cricket. So... Um, you know, he, he was the one who obviously had other agendas, had nothing to do with cricket. Um, so, yeah, I moved on. I mean, that year, we hadn't played a test match for, since that India series. Um, so it wasn't lack of performance that I was moved on. Yeah, near tenure, politi- only played political five win. test matches, right? Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we played two at home that time. We had, see, that was the time when all the series started being cancelled. Australia was supposed to come out, they cancelled. The, I think the, uh, um, not the world championship, but that that series was supposed to be in Pakistan. It got cancelled. So people stopped coming to Pakistan to tour at that time. So South Africa came for two tests, uh, which were two pretty good tests. Um, and then uh, people stopped coming. We I think we had Zimbabwe for a series. We went to Bangladesh. We we I think we beat. We won a series in Bangladesh against a tri series with India and Bangladesh, which was was a fa- fabulous victory. So we, we beat a pretty good Indian side there. Um, but it was it was interesting times for Pakistan as a whole. Sure. So 
again, you know, since your time, it seems like, you know, cricket has evolved. The, like I was saying, coaching is a fairly new discipline at the international team level. They always coach at school level. But uh, I was even talking to Greg Chappell when he was on the podcast. So the last 14, 15 years, is more coaching staff, bowling coach, assistant, batting coach, fielding coach. It's just a full coaching crew. So keeping that in mind, what is the good time frame to assess if a coach had a good run? Because, you know, in international cricket, there is no off season. You're always working for the next series. So when a coach comes, you pick the pieces together from the previous coach. What kind of, you know, depending on the team you have, are you rebuilding? Are you like, you know, bringing some old players? So, and then what is like Virat Kohli's team? Is, there's a lot of talk about building a fast bowling culture. So what is a good time frame to judge a coach's contribution at an international test team? Well, it, it's, it's difficult because the other thing you have is three formats. You know, 2050 and test cricket. And you know, I think Australia is struggling at the moment because they've got the wrong coach, particularly for 20-over cricket. They need a specialist 20-over cricket coach and specialist 20-over selectors. And that, that's they're, they're quite confused about what they want to do because they've got a coach who who really uh, doesn't understand or appear, doesn't under, appear to understand you know, the machinations of 20-over cricket who can't get his team together, can't have a consistent batting line-up and... And and I think Australia need a specialist coach, and that that's not that's not an outrageous suggestion. That just means that the, the different format requires different skills, and I think there's some players, some coaches around who could probably do that job. So look, it's always difficult. Teams are always rebuilding; it's, it's a constant process. And rarely are you going to trot, trot out the same team, say for five tests in a row or, or a one day series, particularly twenty over cricket. So so teams are always evolving. And coaches will always have that challenge. I mean, I always thought the cricket in the 80s, I was a big fan of, of American sports and I used to subscribe to Sports Illustrated. And I used to read about all the coaches they had in colleges, you know, universities. Those co- coaches were, were, you know, considered with great reverence in that, in that setup. And, and all the different sports had senior coaches you know, who had been around for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and, and I always thought cricket was an undercoached sport. Uh, because it's specialties, I mean, there really should be a wrist spinning coach and a finger spinning coach because the skills are quite different uh, and, and they're, they're quite unique sort of skills as well. You know, you, you could always, you know, have a, a medium pace coach and a fast bowling coach. You have, you know, batting coaches for, for the different formats. All those things probably work. What doesn't work is when you get, you put, you take 20 staff on a tour. That, that's where the overkill's coming, the, the massive amounts of staff that actually go with the team. And I think it, it detracts and distracts from, from what the players are trying to do. Uh, and they're probably not coaching themselves and having conversations amongst themselves as much rather than going to their, their coaches for every piece of minutiae in the game. And, and players, I think, are becoming less, less self-reliant uh, on their own skills, their own thought processes and, and their team players. So uh, I think we've gone from not enough coaches, maybe to, to too many coaches. Um, but but judging when a coach is successful, I mean, coaches are, are judged by how their players do. You know, sometimes coaches get so unfairly uh, judged because their players just aren't up to it and coaches are doing a perfectly good job. I, I, you see the same in, in other sports. I mean, in soccer is, is the classic, isn't it? You know, a manager could be doing a great job, but his, his team aren't, you know, they lose half a dozen games in a row and they've got to sack the manager. Whereas, you know, they obviously need to sack a few of the players. It, it's, we have the same in, in Australia and our football goes in our Australian rules and our rugby league. You know, if a team's failing, the first thing they want to do is sack a coach. They don't, they don't look at the players quite enough. Um, but, but yeah, look, it, it's, a, it's a question uh, without a, out of, particular answer about the success of coaches. I mean, you know, guys like Bob Walmer were fantastic long-term coaches. Duncan Fletcher was the same. Um, you know, there's been guys who've, who've been able to do it across different formats and long, across long periods of time. I mean, Trevor Bayless is a very unique coach and he's been enormously successful at everything he's done. But he's, he's very understated. He doesn't believe in having too many staff. He believes in the players making their own decisions, and, and it works for him. I mean, Greg Shippard in Australia, 
is the most celebrated coach we have, the most successful and across all formats. And he hasn't coached Australia. He should probably be coaching Australia right now uh, because he has those, those skills and he's a terrific man manager. Um, so, yeah, look, it's, it's just like the, the captaincy question. It, you know, different coaches have different personalities. They have different strengths and weaknesses. And uh, it, it's up to that that coach to impart his his wisdom on a, on a team or a squad that they all have their own personalities and characteristics so it, it's a quite a complex question uh, but ultimately uh, it, it's how you get the best out of a player I've got a saying that says you know you want to be a coach know the game and coach the individual which means you've got to have knowledge of the game you know broad and in-depth knowledge of the game of cricket but you've got to know how that applies to each individual in in, in your team and how to get the best out of them and and People and players are all—they're all very different. You think coaching at a national academy or centres of excellence? You think that's a good prerequisite for any any former cricketer to start coaching at the international level, or each country has its own demands? Well, well, yes, each country has its its own different systems and requirements. But there, there are too many ex-players who finish playing one year and become coaches the next, and they don't learn how to be coaches. There are very few players can then go from playing to coaching in a short period of time uh, and basically they should be you know learning to coach at pathways at age group levels at, at minor levels even at club levels and then moving on through and that's classically what ha- what happens in the american system which there are so many sports and so many levels that, that you can learn at but uh, there's been a lot of failures in cricket because ex-players simply do not know how to coach and they don't get get the experience at Lowell, they, they want to go from being multi-million dollar players to multi-million dollar coaches uh, from year to year. They don't want to go back and learn how to how to coach and how to deal with players. So there is the, the the exception to that rule. There's always you know, an ex-player who who has been around for a long time who then becomes a good coach straight away. But but they're the exceptions. Um, uh, but it, it's that 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 area where you know ex-players think they. They can be great coaches in, in very short periods of time, and very few can. Uh, another question that comes to mind is, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, you know, yourself, Greg Chappell, uh, Mike Hussey, you know, there are a lot of great Australian coaches that have, you know, found work all over the world because just like good education system, Australian cricket system was seen superior for the longest time. And I'm sure it still is, but, you know, we have come a long way now. So keeping that in mind and the cultural clash that you say, okay, an Aussie or Englishman will have to adjust coaching in the subcontinent. Do you think we are not far away? Maybe in the future, Australia hires, say, Rahul Dravid or someone of his stature as a coach. you think, uh, is that a reality? Maybe in the coming years, when Australia takes to re- take, aims to revive with some of its greatness and maybe brings in overseas coaching talent? Well, look, I, I think it, if it would be mad not to consider overseas coaches. Because they, they will always bring something unique to the table. I mean, of course, Australia had Mickey Arthur, uh, and that that didn't work because Mickey tried to impose his particular disciplines on players who who, who didn't respond to that. Um, I mean, that, that, and Mickey's been a, a really successful coach around the world, but he, he didn't get that one right because he didn't read the, the players and that culture well enough. And that's what you've got to do no matter where you, you go to. You know, when you're coaching national teams, I think it's always, you know, nearly always best to have <clears throat> your own national coach from, from your own country who's probably been a high-level ex-player. When I went to Pakistan, I always said that Pakistan have to work towards getting a Pakistan national coach. They have to have a local guy. I always said that. At the particular time I was there, obviously Bob had been there, Bob Warmer. And through to me, I thought, yes, you need an overseas coach here right now, owing to the environment that that's, that those players are working in. It was quite a volatile one after that 07 World Cup. Um, an overseas coach was necessary for that time, but you had to work towards having a local coach, which they have, which is which is terrific. So that's worked out. And I, I think probably the same for Australia. There is some time where you're going to need an overseas coach, and, and maybe that's... That's now because there's not too many senior coaches uh, who are qualified apart from, I say, Trevor Bayless, who who 
has just taken up a job with the Sydney Thunder and he does the IPL and he's, he's quite happy doing that. He doesn't want to be a, a national coach uh, at, at the moment because he's, he's done it. He's been through the, through the ringer in, in England and also got them through to a World Cup title and now he wants a bit of downtime. Um, but there's not too many experienced people who have done well in, in Australian first-class cricket coaching who, who could take over the national side at, at the moment. So, yeah, maybe it is time to, to look elsewhere. And, and even the, the Dravid suggestion is a very fascinating one, I, I find. You know, he's such a, such a great man and uh, he's working in that coaching space. That, that, that would be quite interesting. Uh, again, you know, with the, after your tenure ended in Pakistan, you stayed pretty close to Pakistan cricket. You know, there were a lot of articles. You even wrote an open letter to Dave Watmore, who succeeded, not succeeded, but who came in a few years after you had left Pakistan. So keeping that in mind, what has happened to Pakistan cricket? I mean, you know, they were very competitive in your years and even a few years after that. They've had a few highs with Miss Ba, Yunus and co., but they're just not the same force. So you think it's the infrastructure, something is missing. Of course, they don't have home games for the longest time. But what has happened? There's no shortage of talent. Haven't they modernized enough with the times? Where are they falling behind compared to the other subcontinent teams? India is definitely in a league of its own. But Pakistan being Pakistan is not what it used to be, say, in the late 80s to late 90s. Yeah, well, well great sides always have, have great players. I, I, my view of Pakistan at the moment, they're just going through a cycle where they haven't quite got those those absolutely top shelf players. I mean, Baba arms have done pretty well. Uh, you know, the, the like the fast bowling is okay and the spin bowling is okay, but they haven't quite. They've got no Abdul Carters there. Uh, they've got got no, you know, absolutely top rank uh, fast bowling. Although Sh- Shaheen Afridi could could be that in a couple of years. So they're going through a bit of a development stage and haven't quite got that that absolute top shelf uh, group of players. So I think that's just a natural cycle. Uh, I don't think that's a lot to do with the system because the system in Pakistan hasn't changed a great deal. Just, they just play a lot of cricket and they produce a lot of players with, with, with massive talent. They just haven't quite got, got the top level. Whereas you go to India, um, I, I think they have improved their system amazingly, which is why they're getting all the fast bowlers. And you could probably go back to MRF and Dennis Lee's contribution there. But now India's got some, you know, superb fast bowlers and, and, and some great players. I mean, Kohli is, is, is a great player. Uh, you know, the, the batting lineups, you know, Panther's come in and he's, he's, a, he's a genius. You know, it's a pretty good cricket side. Uh, you know, Jadeja as the all-rounder. You know, it's how good it is to have someone like him at batting at seven or eight. Um, so yeah, they, they, they've got some some magic players at the moment. It's a golden era of Indian cricket and Pakistan. Yeah, just just haven't got those couple of geniuses that <clears throat> excuse me that, that perhaps Indian have. All right. So last two questions on Australia now before we wrap this up. Again, Australian cricket team. There's some people say there's worry signs because you know after Steve Smith and Manus Labashain, you don't see world class batting coming through the ranks and uh, fast bowling. Looks like it's in good hands, but what's the future? So, fill the listeners here. You know, are you concerned? What is Australia's red ball present, or are there enough? There's enough talent at the Sheffield Shield level that an Aussie fan listening to this podcast should not be worried. So, what are your thoughts on you know where Australians, uh, Australian team's uh, test side resides right now? Yeah, well, obviously the, the, the Aussies have, have got some some pretty good fast bowling. I think that's that's the issue at the moment. Um, as apart from Smith and Labus, Gugging, other, it, it, the batting's a little bit thin. Uh, but but a lot of that's I think it's got to do with the formats they're playing. There's, there's such an emphasis being put on T20 cricket in Australia. The Big Bash is a big revenue raiser for Cricket Australia, and it now takes up the whole middle of the summer. Uh, and I think. Uh, a little more emphasis needs to be put back on Sheffield Shield cricket and four-day cricket and the best players playing. Yeah. A lot of our top contracted players don't play Sheffield Shield cricket. You know, they don't have to. They're already getting paid plenty of money. Uh, it seems like selectors want them rested all the time. So the, the depth of the competition at the top level isn't quite there. And, and I think that's something they really have to address, that, that these guys who are getting paid a lot of money, they need to play some more cricket, particularly particularly four-day cricket. So we have the big bash that runs through the middle of the summer when the test series is also on. And so um, 
if you were looking for a replacement in the test side, you've got to pull them out of a 2020 competition. And that really doesn't work that well. It's pretty hard to adapt from T20 cricket to test cricket, you know, from day to day. I mean, that, that, that often what happens. So, and the other thing is it's a bit of that cycle where, you know, we've got, a, I say, a couple of good players. You mentioned Smith and Labuscardi. I mean, you know, you probably got to throw Warner in there, particularly at, at home in, in Australia. Uh, but there's, there's just a couple of middle order players we're, we're missing out on, and uh, you know we, we, we need another spin bowler to, to help out Nathan Lyon. You know, Nathan Lyon's done a, a superb job, but they need another spinner. Uh, you'd love to have a leggy, whether it's going to be Swepson or, or Boyce. Those guys have to get better, and so Australia can play two spinners. And you know, you, you look at last summer where where India held on at, at Sydney, their one in Brisbane. Well, in Sydney, they they kept blaming um, Nathan Lyon for not for Australia not winning, whereas was what they needed to blame was selectors for not picking two spinners. And they picked an all rounder, a seam bowling all rounder, rather than picking a picking a spinner. That's just nonsense at the SCG. So you've got to pick the right teams and have the right balance as well. So it's all those, all those factors. I mean, last year Sheffield Shield, owing to the the, the COVID bubble that. The first, you know, four games were all played in Adelaide at one venue, which was quite interesting because a couple of the test players were forced to play in that, and, and it actually presented some more opportunities for young players. So, uh, the Sheffield Shield is a great system as long as the top players have to continually play it and not not be able to rest and step out of that. Uh, so, we need some some stronger action from our, from the board. We need stronger action from the selectors, and which Trevor Holmes has just just resigned, so they need to replace another selector there. Um, and and, and the, the, they need to work on those little issues. But yeah, what will be fascinating is is England Australia Ashes in the coming summer because I think the, that will indicate to both of those teams just just how strong they are. All right, so let's wrap this up with one of my favorite questions: uh, Why don't we see many fast bowlers or even bowlers captaining Australia? Since I've been watching cricket, it's only been batsmen. You have captained uh, New South Wales. But uh, we haven't really seen many captains. And using that in mind, would you prefer Cummins to captain Australia if there's a change over Steve Smith, if that name is still floating around? What are your thoughts? Well, there's, uh, well without coming up with some pejorative terms about, about selectors and how cricket's run by batsmen, um, yeah, I mean, more bowlers should be, should be captains. When, when I, at one stage when I was captain New South Wales, I think every state was captain, captained by a fast bowler. Uh, and I'll throw Simon and Donnelly in that when he was an all-rounder, but I think uh, you know Jeff Thompson captain Queensland, uh, Terry Alderman at uh, WA. Um, just trying to think, it was a South Australia, but every state was actually captained by a fast bowler. So that was the, the golden era. Uh, Pat Cummins would make an outstanding captain. There's no doubt about that. And, and I don't know why they're even talking about anybody else. They're mainly the vice captain. Um, you know, he's, he's also playing superbly, you know, in his time off of his back injury, he went and got a business degree. He's now got a tertiary education. He, he's a, he's a lovely, even tempered guy, uh, very competitive as, as you've got to be, but you know, he's, he's got a great view of life and the game. He, he ticks all the boxes for being a captain. I, I can only think that, that, you know, fast bowlers have never been considered captains because you tend to get injured. Uh, a little bit more which, because you're, you're working on the envelope of your phys- physical capabilities all the time. And, you know, that happens. We know fastballs are going to get injured. They, they, they work hard. And therefore, you don't get continuity in your leadership and your captaincy. Uh, that, that has got to be the major reason why fastballs haven't been captain. I remember back in, I think, at 85 in, in, uh, oh, in 85 on the Ashes Tour, I was actually one of the selectors on the tour. And Alan Border didn't play the... We played Middlesex at Lords, and I was the captain. So I captained Australia at Lords. That was my first first class game, and I would have thought in '89 I would have been the vice captain of the side, but no, nah, didn't didn't happen. Um, even though I'd been captaining New South Wales quite successfully, so there's always some resistance to fast bowlers being captains. I think Imran Khan probably made a pretty good captain, didn't he? Richard Hadley, if Capel did, they, they were pretty good captains. Uh, Bob Lewis, Markram, of yeah. course. Yeah. That is- yeah, I mean, it's probably, a, yeah. uh, I don't know, maybe a culture thing or, like you said, uh, cricket is run uh, by batsmen. Australia's shot away from it. 
Anyway, well, so it's certainly Jeff- run by a batsman. We can see all the rules that are made that, that they're all about batting. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think Pat Cummins would make a make a super captain. Right, on that note, we can wrap this up. Thank you for your time and your generosity. It was a wonderful chat. I hope the listeners really enjoyed. I certainly did. I learned a, a thing or new. Hopefully, uh, we can host you again at this podcast. Shukriya, Sapi Sikhi. Shukriya. <laughs>